All sorts of heretical groups and reactionary and reforming parties arose in the church and were dealt with. These included the Ebionites, the Gnostics, the Mancheans, the Montanists, the Novatians, the Donatists, and others. But in none of these controversies was the question of scriptural infallibility an issue. It formed no special part of the various movements and controversies. It is true that Celsus in the 3rd century made light of Christians and scripture, but he hardly represented a concentrated attack, and he did not father a formidable movement. At the time of the Reformation, as we shall see, biblical inerrancy was not a top priority item. Whether anything could be added to scripture or whether scripture alone was the Christian standard was an important subject, but at the heart of the Reform movement were the doctrines of justification by faith alone and the priesthood of all believers. Now, if it is true that the question of biblical infallibility was not an important one until the 19th century, did the church believe and teach it through the ages? It is my contention that, apart from a few exceptions, the church through the ages has consistently believed that the entire Bible is the inerrant or infallible word of God. Undoubtedly, some of the churchmen who believed in biblical infallibility differed about how the revelation of God was transmitted to men. Some apparently believed in what is called mechanical dictation, but they represented a minority. Moreover, whether one holds to this view, or to the view that stresses the dynamic interaction between the human and the divine, acknowledging that scripture is the product of both, one fact remains. In either event, the outcome was the same. The people of God were given an inerrant Bible. Now, what are the evidences from the documents of church history that throw light on the view of the church about infallibility? The New Testament witness to infallibility. When we speak of church history, it is obvious that we cannot overlook the New Testament itself, and particularly the life of Jesus. I have already dealt with the issue of the claims of Scripture with respect to its infallibility. I now begin with Jesus Christ and his attitude toward the Word of God written. Kenneth Cancer, Dean of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, has written about the testimony of liberal scholars who themselves denied biblical infallibility. He says, H.J. Cadbury, Harvard professor and one of the more extreme New Testament critics of the last generation, once declared that he was far more sure as a mere historical fact that Jesus held to the common Jewish view of an infallible Bible than that Jesus believed in his own messiahship. Adolf Harnack, greatest church historian of modern times, insists that Christ was one with his disciples, the Jews, and the entire early church in complete commitment to the infallible authority of the Bible. John Knox, author of what is perhaps the most highly regarded recent life of Christ, states that there can be no question that this view of the Bible was taught by our Lord himself. End of quote. Rudolf Bultmann, a radical anti-supernaturalist, but acknowledged by many to be the greatest New Testament scholar of modern times, asserts that Jesus accepted the common notion of his day regarding the infallibility of Scripture. He wrote, Jesus agreed always with the scribes of his time in accepting without question the authority of the Old Testament law. When he was asked by the rich man, What must I do to inherit eternal life? He answered, You know the commandments. And he repeated the well-known Old Testament Decalogue. Jesus did not attack the law, but assumed its authority and interpreted it. And from this time, 
After Jesus' day, when Paul and others preached, came the well-known words which Jesus surely cannot have said, Do not suppose that I have come to destroy the law and the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. I tell you truly, until heaven and earth vanish, no letter nor point can vanish from the law until all is fulfilled. Whoever erases one of the smallest commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps it and teaches it shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, verses 17 to 19, end of quote. F.C. Grant, Union Seminary Professor and a liberal biblical critic, agrees that the writers of Scripture, as well as Jesus, believed in biblical infallibility. He wrote, The passage quoted from 2 Timothy is the most explicit statement of the doctrine of biblical inspiration to be found in the New Testament. But its view of inspiration is not more advanced than that of any other part of the volume, as an examination of the passages cited in a concordance will show. Everywhere it is taken for granted that what is written in Scripture is the work of divine inspiration and is therefore trustworthy, infallible, and inerrant. The scripture must be fulfilled, Luke 22:37. What was written there was written for our instruction, Romans 15, verse 4, and 1 Corinthians 10:11. What is described or related in the Old Testament is unquestionably true. No New Testament writer would dream of questioning a statement contained in the Old Testament, though the exact manner or mode of its inspiration is nowhere explicitly stated. End of quote. Grant's statement has interesting implications. He himself did not believe in biblical inerrancy, but he acknowledges that it was taught and believed by Jesus and the writers of the New Testament with respect to the Old Testament. In our day we have so-called evangelicals who, in one sense, hold a higher view of Scripture than Grant did, but who deny that biblical inerrancy is taught in Scripture. Grant was either a more perceptive scholar or a more honest one. He did not seek to hide his unbelief by claiming the Bible does not teach the view he refused to accept. John Warwick Montgomery, a brilliant evangelical scholar, said this with regard to Jesus and Scripture. Christ's attitude toward the Old Testament was one of total trust. Nowhere, in no particular, and on no subject did he place Scripture under criticism. Never did he distinguish truth in faith and practice from veracity in historical and secular matters. And he told the evil foe in no uncertain terms that man lives by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Matthew 4.4, quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. To his apostles, under whose scrutiny the New Testament would be written, he promised his Holy Spirit, who shall bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. John 14, verse 26. See also 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. Inerrancy? Yes. Induction? Yes. The way out of the fly bottle? Approaching scripture always and everywhere, as did the Lord Christ. End of quote. If Jesus taught biblical inerrancy, either he knew inerrancy to be true, or he knew it to be false but catered to the ignorance of his hearers, or he was limited and held to something that was not true but he did not know it, Whichever way anyone goes with regard to his Christology, certain conclusions follow inevitably. For example, if Jesus knew that the scripture was not inerrant and yet taught that it was, he was guilty of deception. 
Thus he was a sinner rather than a sinless being. If he was a man of his times and in ignorance thought inerrancy to be true, then he was in no sense omniscient, and this leads to a very strange Christology. The third alternative is the only one that holds water. Christ taught that scripture is inerrant because he knew it to be so. This is the only view that fits the New Testament evidences about the person of Jesus. George Duncan Berry on Inerrancy I turn now from the person of Jesus to purely human witnesses. Fortunately, at least for the first five centuries, adequate research has been done on the subject, making it easier to grasp the opinions of the early writers without having to read through the voluminous tomes amassed in the Anti-Nicene, Nicene, and Post-Nicene Fathers. George Duncan Berry's book, The Inspiration and Authority of Holy Scripture, A Study in the Literature of the First Five Centuries, is an excellent work that surveyed the early church fathers' views on scripture. Barry observed, The fact that for fifteen centuries no attempt was made to formulate a definition of the doctrine of inspiration of the Bible testifies to the universal belief of the church that the scriptures were the handiwork of the Holy Ghost. It was, to our modern judgment, a mechanical and erroneous view of inspiration that was accepted and taught by the church of the first centuries seeing that it ruled out all possibility of error in matters either of history or of doctrine. Men expressed their belief in the inspiration and authority of the Bible in language which startles us by its strange want of reserve. The scriptures were regarded as writings of the Holy Spirit, no room at all being left for the play of the human agent in the divine hands. The writers were used by him as a workman uses his tools. In a word, the books, the actual words, rather than the writers, were inspired. End of quote. The words of Barry are important for three reasons. First, he makes it clear that the writers believed in an inerrant scripture, and that since there was no question about that viewpoint, it required no special statements to offset any contravening opinions. Second, his witness is important because, while he himself does not believe in biblical inerrancy, he acknowledges that it was the predominant view. Third, he notes that these witnesses held such a high view of the divine activity in inscripturation that they talked as though the words, rather than the writers, were inspired. He is saying that these witnesses believed in verbal inspiration, indeed perhaps in mechanical dictation. What is striking here is that whatever may have been the differences of opinions about how the scriptures were indicted, whether by mechanical or dynamic means or in some other way, the net result was the same. The Bible was looked upon as holy without error in its entirety. Josephus With respect to Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, Barry notes that he held a very high view of scripture. He wrote, In Josephus we are dealing with an author who wrote more especially for Gentile readers. The high estimate which Josephus formed of the sacred books coincides closely with that of Philo. His reverence for them is based on his belief that their authors wrote under the influence of the divine spirit. In speaking of Moses, Josephus describes him as a prophet in so exalted a sense that his words are to be regarded as the words of God himself. Of Isaiah he says that he was a prophet confessedly divine and unhesitatingly averse that all the prophecies of Isaiah and of the twelve minor prophets have been literally fulfilled 
and thereby the divine authority of the writers has been vindicated beyond all suspicion. The full statement of the views held by Josephus of the authority and inspiration of the Bible is to be found in a celebrated passage of his treatise, Contra Opinium. He says, There is no discrepancy in the facts recorded. The prophets learned their message by reason of the inspiration which they received from God. They compiled accurately the history of their own time. It is impossible to conceive language which could assign a higher authority to the Bible than that which he used. End of quote. It was this same Barry, however, who balked at believing what he himself says the early writers taught. For he says, Providentially, as we believe, no authoritative definition of inspiration was ever made to which the church stands committed. Nowhere are we required to believe in the inerrancy of the inspired writings. The inspiration of the Bible and the presence of our Lord in the Holy Communion are alike the unshaken faith of the church. But in either case the church has been divinely guided, as one must certainly believe, not to define the mode of the divine working. End of quote. Clement and Polycarp In the writings of Clement appear such expressions as these, quote, You have carefully studied the sacred scriptures, which are the true utterances of the Holy Spirit. You know that in them there hath not been written anything that is unrighteous or counterfeit. End of quote. Polycarp held the word of God in exalted reverence, calling it the oracles of the Lord and saying dogmatically that whoever perverts it is the firstborn of Satan. The Letter of Barnabas From the letter of Barnabas, Barry concludes that he possesses great reverence for the books of the Bible and introduces quotations from them with the formula such as these. The Lord saith in the prophet, The Spirit of the Lord prophesieth. Moses spake in the Spirit. The Scripture saith. The prophet saith speaking of the psalmist, the Spirit speaks to the heart of Moses. No theory of inspiration is attempted, but there is no doubt that the books constituted for the author a final court of appeal, and that their teaching was uniquely authoritative. The Apologists Among the Apologists, we find that the belief in inspiration is carried a step further. These writers were feeling about for a working definition. The first definite doctrinal exposition of inspiration is found in the appeal to the Greeks, which may have been written by Justin Martyr. We are told that the writers received from God the knowledge which they taught. This knowledge was too great to have been acquired otherwise than by the divine gift which descended on men whose sole function was to present themselves pure to the energy of the divine spirit in order that the divine plectrum itself, descending from heaven and using righteous men as an instrument like a harp or lyre, might reveal the knowledge of things divine. Moreover, Moses, says the writer of the Korahoshio, wrote by the divine inspiration. The writer sums up the whole argument with the statement that it is only from the prophets who teach us by divine inspiration that we can really learn about God and the true religion. Clearly, he believes in the verbal inspiration of the books, and he makes it quite plain that the writers were inspired only for the purpose of imparting religious truths, such as are necessary for the salvation of men. Barry's interpretation here is open to question. 
The writer Barry quote says, To him first did God communicate that divine and prophetic gift, which in those days descended upon the holy men, and him also did he first furnish, that he might be our teacher in religion, and then after him the rest of the prophets, who obtained the same gift as he, and taught us the same doctrines concerning the same subjects. These we assert to have been our teachers, who taught us nothing from their own human conception, but from the gift vouchsafed to them by God from above. End of quote. This can hardly be construed as saying that the writers are inspired only for the purpose of imparting religious truth. Justin Martyr rests his whole case as an apologist on the teaching of Holy Scripture. The authority of the sacred books is beyond question. His opponent, Trifo, describes him as holding fast by the scriptures, a phrase that is abundantly illustrated from his writings. The scriptures do not contradict each other and are of undisputed authority, being the teaching of God through inspired men. He makes it clear beyond doubt that the words of the prophet were not his own, but were uttered by the divine Logos, who moved him. When you hear the words of the prophets, spoken as though in their own persons, you are not to think that they are uttered by the inspired men themselves, but by the divine word who moves them. Beyond all doubt, Justin held the plenary inspiration of the Old Testament and accepted its teaching as guaranteed by divine authority. End of quote. Athenagoras, in the second century, says Barry, was committed to the view that the human instrument is practically passive in the hands of the player to whom all the praise is due. In the same language, Anathagoras speaks of the word as an instrument in tune, and he adores the being who harmonizes the strain and leads the melody, and not the instrument. Ambrose says much the same thing, speaking of the utterances of Balaam, whom he describes as a lifeless instrument in the hands of God. Thou shalt say not what thou wouldst, but what thou art made to say. Tatian had a clear grasp of the fact that the books of the Bible attain a supreme standard of authority, because the writers are men whom the Spirit of God found responsive to his teaching. They are inspired. Theophilus of Antioch in the 2nd century said that the men of God, enlightened by the Holy Spirit, inspired and endowed with wisdom by God himself, were divinely taught and made holy and righteous. Theophilus, says Barry, insists in several other passages that the writers never contradict one another. They were preserved from error in their description of events which precede their own time by reason of the wisdom of God and his divine logos through whom Solomon and Moses spoke. Irenaeus Irenaeus, in the second century, stated that the writers of Scripture were filled with perfect knowledge on every subject. On the inspiration of the Bible, Barry says, he insists most strongly. The Spirit of God spoke through the writers. The Scriptures are the words of the Spirit. They are perfect, for they were spoken by the Word of God and His Spirit. The prophets, as recipients of the prophetic gift, foretold the coming of the Lord in the flesh. Irenaeus goes so far as to say that the very phrases of the Gospels were due to the prevision of the Holy Spirit. Irenaeus shows that inspiration does not at all do away with individuality or the literary style of the writers of the Bible. Tertullian 
Tertullian, in the second and third centuries, according to Barry, had a high view of scripture. It would be difficult to overstate the reverence paid by Tertullian to the scriptures of both the Old and New Testaments, or to imagine any language to describe the authority of the books, stronger or more definite than that which he actually employs. Tertullian teaches that all believers have the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but the inspired writers, the apostles, knew everything. What man of balanced mind can believe that those whom the Lord gave to the church as its masters were left in ignorance on any matter whatsoever? Tertullian did not hesitate to say that the very phrases of Holy Scripture are the result of inspiration and that the foresight of the Holy Spirit cut away the ground from heretics. This is verbal inspiration in its most naked form. He admits that there are degrees of inspiration in the sacred authors and discusses the question in its bearing on St. Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 4, This say I, not the Lord. Cyprian Cyprian, the third century Christian martyr and bishop of Carthage, paid high tribute to scripture. The names which he gives to the scriptures testify to his reverence for them. They are divine scripture, precepts of the gospel, divine commands, sacred scriptures, scriptures from heaven, precepts of the divine law, wells of divine fullness, voices of the Lord. The formula of quotations are varied and the several phrases are used apparently with entire impartiality. The Lord himself saith in the twelve prophets, the Holy Spirit declares and saith through Isaiah. The divine scripture saith. The Holy Spirit declares in the Psalms. Solomon, inspired by the Holy Spirit, testifies. Paul, filled with the grace of the Master's inspiration. The words which God speaks. In the summary of the Council of Carthage concerning the baptism of heretics, one of the bishops gives his decision based on the authority of the Holy Scriptures and another complains of the blasphemous treatment by heretics of the sacred and ever-to-be-revered words of the scriptures. To both men, as to Cyprian, the scriptures are the final court of appeal. Clement of Alexandria In the case of Clement of Alexandria, 2nd and 3rd centuries, from his infancy he had been taught to reverence every letter of the Greek Bible, and he felt no difficulty in believing that he who inspired the prophecy had inspired the translation also. Clement's view of the plenary authority of the Old and New Testaments is unequivocal. He admits the doctrine of verbal inspiration, but finds himself sorely tried by the difficulty of reconciling his reason with his faith, the philosophy of Greece with the teaching of the law and the prophets. He advocates no bald mechanical theory which leaves no room for the exercise of men's faculties, but that the human side of inspiration must be allowed due recognition. And once more, Clement teaches us that the man who believes the divine scriptures with sure judgment receives in the voice of God, who bestowed the scripture, a demonstration which cannot be impugned. Origin Berry writes, to Origen, the Holy Scriptures and the teaching of the Spirit were the final and absolute spring of divine truth. Origen states categorically his reason for accepting the plenary inspiration of the Bible. He says, 
the sacred volumes are fully inspired by the Holy Spirit, and there is no passage either in the law or the gospel or the writings of an apostle which does not proceed from the inspired source of divine truth. Indeed, so strongly does he acknowledge the divine afflutus as operating on the writers of the Bible that he states his belief that in the words of his Master Christ, whether they are found in the law or the prophets, not one iota lacks a spiritual meaning, nor shall one of them pass away until all things are accomplished. So complete is Origen's acceptance of each and every statement in the Bible that he does not hesitate to say that every letter, how strange soever, which stands written in the oracles of God, does its work. The books are writings of the Holy Spirit. They vibrate for those who have ears to hear with the harmony of God. Indeed, the whole scripture is his one perfect harmonious instrument. We are justified in inferring that Origen believed the Bible to be the joint product of the Holy Spirit and human authors. Anastasius Anastasius, a 4th century father, said, The Holy Scripture is mightier than all synods. The whole of our scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament, are profitable for instruction as it is written. To him the Bible is a book wholly inspired by God from beginning to end. He even said that each psalm has been spoken and composed by the Holy Spirit. Gregory of Nanazius and Basil the Great Gregory of Nanazius, one of the four great doctors of the East, Basil the Great his brother, John Chrysostom and Anastasius being the other three, had this to say, Nothing he tells us is without design in scripture. Every stroke and every letter has its special significance. We trace the accuracy of the spirit in detail to each separate stroke and letter. For it is blasphemous to suppose that exact pains were bestowed by the compilers of the books, or even the smallest letters, without design. His brother Basil said that the words of Scripture were dictated by the Holy Spirit. No single syllable of the sacred writings is to be neglected. Every word or action must be accepted on the testimony of inspired Scripture. Chrysostom Chrysostom in the 4th century said, there is divergence in the historical narratives of the Gospels, but there is no contradiction. Barry says about him, He clearly recognizes that while the writers of the books are inspired, their message is given in their own words, and their individuality is always preserved. He warns that we must not disregard even those passages which we might imagine to be of least importance. The Bible presents us true history, and unless this principle be honestly recognized, it is useless to teach doctrinal and spiritual lessons as contained in the words, for that is to build a superstructure on a precarious and crazy foundation. Theodoret Theodoret, a 5th century bishop of Cyrus, who was thoroughly versed in dogmatic theology as well as a defender of biblical orthodoxy, said that the peculiar function of a prophet is to employ his tongue as a willing servant of the grace of the Spirit. Discussing the authorship of the various psalms, Theodoret dismisses the question as of no real importance. What advantage do I derive from knowing whether all were composed by one particular poet or some of them were the work of other writers? 
It is enough for me to know that one and all are the handiwork of the Holy Spirit. It is only fair to add that Theodoret had questions about the canonicity of some of the New Testament books, but those he regarded as canonical he accepted as wholly free from error. Jerome Jerome, who produced the Latin Vulgate and who probably was the most learned of the church fathers in the Hebrew language, had a high view of the Bible. He states his conviction that in the Holy Scripture even the order of the words has a secret meaning. No single syllable lacks its own special force. Every phrase or syllable or point in Holy Scripture is full of meaning. The heretics produce their witness from the most pure font of the Scriptures, but they do not interpret them in the sense in which they were written. They are set upon reading their own meaning into the simple word of the Church's books. The quotations are of interest, not only because they show that for heretics and for orthodox alike, Holy Scripture was the final court of appeal, but also from the singularly clear testimony which they contain to the authority and inspiration of the books as taught by Jerome. The Scriptures are the most sure font from which knowledge is derived. They are written and edited by the Holy Spirit. Whatever we read in the Old Testament we find also in the Gospel, and what we read in the Gospel is deduced from the Old Testament. There is no discord between them, no disagreement. In both Testaments the Trinity is preached. Jerome recognized the existence of human faults, such as grammatical errors, in the writers of the Bible. Yet he is careful to guard himself against any dangerous inferences that might be drawn from this admission. For myself, whenever I note a solecism or any such irregularity, I do not find fault with the Apostle, but constitute myself his champion. His theory was that the divine power of the Word destroyed these apparent blemishes or caused believing Christians to overlook them. In a word, he taught that the external phenomena do not preclude the reality of the highest influences of divine grace. Augustine of all the church fathers, none, perhaps, attained the stature that Augustine reached in his age and in the long history of the Christian church since then. Surely no other early church father had more influence on the life of Calvin and through him on the reformed churches of the Reformation. His attitude toward the scriptures should bear weight, especially among those in the reformed tradition. He said, The faith will totter if the authority of the holy scriptures loses its hold on men. We must surrender ourselves to the authority of Holy Scripture, for it can neither mislead nor be misled. The question, says Barry, why Christ himself did not write any book, is answered by Augustine in these remarkable words. He says, His members gave out the knowledge which they had received through the dictation of the head. Whatever he willed us to read concerning his own words and acts, he bade them write, as though they were his own very words. End of quote. More unguardedly still, Augustine teaches that we see in the Gospels the very hand of the Lord which he wore in his own body. There are no contradictions of each other's writings in the books of the four evangelists. He says, We must demonstrate that the four sacred writers are not at variance with each other. For our opponents frequently maintain that discrepancies are found in the evangelists. End of quote. Freely do I admit to you, my friend, that I have learnt to ascribe to those books which are of canonical rank, and only to them, 
such reverence and honor that I firmly believe that no single error due to the author is found in any of them. And when I am confronted in these books with anything that seems to be at variance with truth, I do not hesitate to put it down either to the use of an incorrect text or to the failure of a commentator rightly to explain the words or to my own mistaken understanding of the passage. The Roman Catholic Church The view expressed by Augustine was the view the Roman Catholic Church believed, taught, and propagated through the centuries. The early church fathers came from both the Eastern Church and the Western Church. When the papacy evolved and later the church was split into the Greek and Latin churches, it was not caused by a difference of opinion relative to biblical infallibility. The Latin Church, or the Roman Catholic Church, was the one out of which the Reformers came. It can be said that the Roman Church for more than a thousand years accepted the doctrine of infallibility of all scripture. There are two views the Roman Church repudiated. One was the view that the Holy Spirit secured the writers from error only in matters of faith and morals. This is one of the views that is being advanced in various forms today, but it is not a new view. It has simply surfaced again or has been advocated in slightly different forms. The Catholic Dictionary says that in 1685, Holden, in his work Analysis Fidee, defended the limited inerrancy standpoint but got nowhere. The other view that the Roman Church repudiated was mechanical dictation. For some reason they associated that view with the term verbal inspiration and in their differences with Protestants said that this view found wide acceptance among the older Protestant theologians. Suzerus maintained it is enough to believe that the Holy Spirit specially assisted him, the author of the inspired book while writing, and kept him from all error and falsehood, and from all words which were not expedient. The dictionary also says that if Holden's theory sins against the received teaching and tradition, which it did, most certainly that of verbal inspiration as it has just been explained, the authors of the biblical books were no more than scribes who wrote down the words which the Holy Spirit dictated, sins against the more patent facts. Evidently, the style and method of the sacred writers is colored throughout by their own individuality, and the differences in thought and language between Isaiah and Ezekiel are utterly inexplicable if we regard them as passive agents under a mechanical inspiration. St. Augustine, in well-known words, formalizes the prevailing belief of the Church without falling into the exaggerations of the theory that inspiration is mechanical. What is important to note in this connection is that there are no evangelical scholars who hold to mechanical dictation, although it is true that those who hold to biblical inerrancy do believe in verbal inspiration in the sense that inspiration extends to the words, not just to the thoughts or ideas and yet the writers kept their own styles and individuality. It is significant also that the Catholic Church accepted Augustine's classic statement and used it in principle in the consecration of bishops. In the symbol of faith approved by Leo IX and used in the consecration of bishops, God is affirmed to be the one author of the Old and New Testaments. In the latest New Catholic Encyclopedia, the statement about inerrancy reads, The inerrancy of Scripture has been the constant teaching of the fathers, the theologians, and recent popes in their encyclicals on biblical studies. 
It is nonetheless obvious that many biblical statements are simply not true when judged according to modern knowledge of science and history. The earth is not stationary. Darius the Mede did not succeed Belshazzar. What the encyclopedia is saying is patent to all. The church has always, by the fathers, theologians, and popes, taught biblical inerrancy. Some no longer believe it, despite the fact that it has been the church's viewpoint for centuries. The so-called errors pointed to are the same kinds of errors alluded to by modern evangelicals as the reason for supporting limited inerrancy, and in some cases not even that. So we now come to the age of the reformers to see what their witness to scripture is and what they believed and taught. It would be a mistake to suppose that the reformers formulated a viewpoint such as those expressed by the early ecumenical councils when they were dealing with Christology. It must be remembered that the reformers spent their time talking about the issues that were important in the struggle against the Roman Church. Since the Roman Church held to a view of scripture that was no different from that held by the reformers, there was no real problem. The problem came from adding to scripture and was not concerned with whether scripture could be trusted. It was about interpretation, not inerrancy. The role of the church as the unerring interpreter of scripture over against the universal priesthood of all believers was important, and the reformers believed that the church could err in interpretation. Martin Luther We come first to Martin Luther and there is no better place to start than with his 95 Thesis. Their contents tell us what troubled him and are a synopsis of the chief subjects Luther wanted to discuss. Four of the Theses dealt with the gospel doctrine of repentance. Twenty-five covered the question of the Pope's power over the souls in purgatory. Eleven proclaimed that church penalties were canceled at death and that indulgences could guarantee no man's salvation. Twelve stressed that other Christian works were more important than buying indulgences. Twenty-eight compared the value of indulgence preaching with the values of gospel preaching. Ten dealt with related matters such as the Pope's wealth and prayers for the dead once an indulgence was obtained. 5. Brought into sharp relief the difference between an indulgence religion and true faith in Christ. Luther did not spend any time arguing about biblical infallibility in the 95 Theses, nor did he elsewhere. It was not a live question, for there was correspondence of belief between himself and the church on that score. Luther believed and taught that the Bible was infallibly true in all its parts. Of that there can be no doubt. But it is useless to look in his writings for a developed thesis to support biblical inerrancy. He believed it. It was not in dispute. He wrote all of his works based on his belief that the Bible was true. But he does leave us with much evidence as to his confidence in the truth of Scripture. Luther quoted from Augustine's letter to Jerome in which he wrote, This I have learned to do to hold only those books which are called the Holy Scriptures in such honor that I finally believe that not one of the holy writers ever erred. Luther endorsed this view of Augustine and himself stated, The Scriptures have never erred. He also said, The Scriptures cannot err. It is certain that Scripture cannot disagree with itself. It is impossible that Scripture should contradict itself, only that it so appears to the senseless and obstinate hypocrites. 
one little point of doctrine means more than heaven and earth, and therefore we cannot suffer to have the least jot thereof violated. For it is established by God's word that God does not lie, nor does his word lie. When Luther found an apparent discrepancy with respect to chronology, he refused to side with those rash men who, in the case of a Bible difficulty, are not afraid to say that scripture is evidently wrong. I conclude the matter with a humble confession of my ignorance, for it is only the Holy Ghost who knows and understands everything. J. Theodore Mueller, in his book, Luther and the Bible, says that Luther unfailingly asserts the inerrancy of scripture over against the errancy of human historians and scientists. He writes, The scriptures have never erred. He also argues that the Lutheran, Dr. Rowe, champions the following thesis, namely that scripture was the sole authority of Luther, that Luther's preface to the epistle of James does not prove a different attitude, that scripture remained Luther's sole authority of the Christian faith till the end of his life, that Luther never admitted any error in scripture, that Luther considered even those parts of the Bible that do not concern our salvation as inerrant, that Luther ascribed absolute inerrancy to the original drafts of the Bible, and that Luther did not teach a mechanical theory of inspiration. Luther indeed believed in verbal and plenary inspiration, but not in a mechanical dictation theory. Mueller also quotes the Lutheran Dr. H. Ektarnik approvingly, The infallibility of scripture was the consensus of the church, irrespective of denominational lines, until long after 1700 A.D. Robert Prius wrote about the Lutheran Quinstat, who followed in Luther's footsteps. Of all the Lutherans of that era, perhaps none excelled Quinstat, who has been charged with holding to a mechanical dictation view of inspiration. We must remember again that whether one holds to this or to some other view of how inerrancy came about, the fact remains that the end process, by whichever method one chooses, is an inerrant scripture. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, 
since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.